Investors Chronicle. Hello and welcome back to the IC Interviews. I'm Mary McDougall and joining me today we have Nick Brind and George Barrow, co-managers of Polar Capital Global Financials Trust. Both Nick and George previously worked at HIM Capital, formerly Hiscox Investment Management, which was taken over by Polar Capital in 2010. Nick, George, thank you for joining me. How are you? Uh, yeah, very good. Thank you, Mary. It's nice to be here. Now, the, um, the aftermath of the financial crisis has not been a great decade for the banking sector compared with some other sectors, but your fund has seen very strong performance in recent months, with the share price up about 60% over the past 12 months. Nick, perhaps we'll start with you. How optimistic are you feeling about your current opportunity set? Yeah, no, we, uh, we feel actually really good about it. Um, financials, as I'm sure you're aware, represent about 15% of global equity markets, of which around half of that is bank shares. And uh, we see them as one of the biggest beneficiaries of this whole sort of reopening reflation trade. So, you know, to start with, they're benefiting from the sort of cyclical recovery in their earnings. So obviously banks are needing to set aside less in loan loss provisions uh, and writing back, you know, some of those they took back in 2020 when they assumed the downturn would be much, much, you know, more severe. Uh, insurance companies, you know, similarly had to take losses, you know, last year because of the pandemic, so event cancellations, business interruption policies, etc. And that's obviously not going to repeat. So you've got that cyclical recovery. You've got regulators have removed, you know, the restrictions on capital return. So we're seeing a jump in, you know, dividends and buybacks. And and finally, obviously, what's topical at the moment, you know, all about inflation, bond yields and interest rates. Um, you know, banks and insurance to a slightly smaller extent are one of the biggest beneficiaries of any rise in, in interest rates and bond yields. So it improves their profitability. And um, probably, you know, against that background, you've got an incredibly cheap sector. In some cases, you know, when you, against wider equity markets, it remains very cheap. So what is the um, average valuation of the holdings in your fund? Uh, that's a great question. I mean, so if you look at um, global banks, um, on average, they're just above uh, one times book. This is, this is the market. Uh, insurance companies probably trade about 1.2 times. Um, for our portfolio, uh, we, you know, we have a sort of quality bias. We like banks, you know, that have good profitability, uh, good funding, um, and, you know, obviously that capital return story. So we're, we're trading at a premium to that. Yeah. And um, you mentioned inflation earlier. Of course, that is that is the concern for vet investors at the moment. Um just to start off with, George, what, what is your outlook for inflation and interest rates? Are you anticipating prolonged inflation or do you think we'll return to the lower for longer environment for bond yields that we saw in the years preceding the pandemic? Yeah, I mean, I think, you know, we have seen some some slowdown in terms of growth indicators more recently, but I think we are seeing a number of signs that inflation might be more durable, you know, certainly than the, the market is expecting. And the, and the market has bought into this whole sort of transitory narrative. But if you look at, you know, what are we seeing because of of COVID, probably a shift to more sort of regionalization rather than globalization. So given the need for control over supply chains, you know, we're seeing housing costs rising. Um, and there are signs of wage growth as well. So driven by both rises in minimum wages, but also because of, of demographic changes. So a number of those we think are more durable than just sort of COVID impacts. You've also got the sort of longer term issues about climate action and the need for sort of major economic transformation around that, which we think will have some sort of inflationary consequences. So, you know, I think 
we have been in an environment of very low rates and expectation that those would continue. So it wouldn't take much for that sort of shift expectations to a, to a high rate environment. And, and that would have a, a positive impact for our sector. Yes. So it would have a positive impact because as interest rates rise, um, that makes banking and lending more profitable. But if it leads to a rise in bad debts, then presumably that's a problem. So it must be a matter of degree of how quickly or how sharply interest rates rise. Um, Nick, where do you think the sweet spot for, the, for this might be? Uh, I mean, that's a great question. Um, I mean, it's, it's, a, it's a classic conundrum. I mean, last rate, uh, rate, rate increase cycle we went through back in 2018, most of the banks you know, saw interest rates needing to get to sort of 4 or 5% before they started to see um, you know, a significant number of their borrowers probably getting into distress. Um, you know, three, four years on, then maybe slightly lower than that. And you've got to think, what would be the impact on markets if interest rates, you know, got close to that? So, yeah, there is a sweet spot. Uh, certainly the first few rate rises, um, you know, certainly up to a few percent, you shouldn't have any major impact on um, bad debts. And how does interest rate sensitivity compare for banks across different geographies? I mean, you know, fundamentally, um, you know, the, the big difference is you've got to look at, you know, different loan books, to what extent banks um, have floating rate loans or fixed rate loans on their balance sheet. So when we look in the US, a lot of the sort of smaller and region, you know, regional banks have a lot of what they call CNI, commercial industrial loans, what, you know, we'd call corporate loans. And they're generally, you know, floating rate, whereas commercial real estate is, is tends to be fixed. So you see, you know, some of those banks are very, very sensitive. Um, the other factor is how profitable is a different, you know, banking sector. Uh, so some of the Southern European banks, you know, some of the Japanese banks um, are not very profitable. Their margins have been squeezed by, you know, low interest rates. So any small incremental improvement in the outlook for interest rates feeds through to the bottom line very, very quickly. And you can see some quite sharp changes. Um, just to prime, try and put some numbers in context, you know, 1% increase in US you know, interest rates in the first year would increase US banks' earnings by an average by about 13%. Now, because it takes time for loans to reprice, um, come year, second year, then that would increase to by about 20%. And then obviously some of the European Japanese banks are more sensitive than that. So if that helps put it in context. Yeah, that's that's quite significant. Um, after the financial crisis, banks' capital requirements were increased under new regulations. George, do you think now globally that bank capital level requirements are about right? Or do you think they might have gone too far? Well, I mean, I think we, you know, we've had a real live stress test with with the pandemics of unprecedented levels of you know of economic slowdown and, and dislocation and, and we've seen you know the system the sector hold up well throughout it and you know certainly there has been support from from government schemes as well but i think you know it, it's shown to be a much more resilient sector than we had in, in the previous cycle um I, I think it's unlikely that regulators are going to relax standards much um 
But equally, I think we've got much more visibility as to the future. And I think that makes a big difference in terms of expectations on capital return and, and sort of outlook for, for dividends and buybacks. So I think we're in a I think because of the uh, experience during the, the most recent downturn with COVID, we're likely to have a more settled regulatory environment. And, you know, that that's a key positive because post the GFC, you know, we had 10 years of, of capital build, of, of regulatory standards ratcheting up and the consequences of, of the GFC. And I, I think this downturn has been very different in, in that term. Yeah, thank you. Um, Nick, so sort of developing that, that paints a more positive picture, but what, what do you think are the biggest threats to banking stability now? Like, could it be liquidity or tapering or cybercrime or something else? What, what are your biggest potential threats, do you think? Yeah, it's it's a really interesting question. I mean, you know, for us, um, the key thing when we're looking at the banking sector is, you know, are their are their balance sheets strong? Which you know, George has obviously just touched on. You know, you in the US, for example, you have to go back to the 1930s to a time when they had more capital than they do today. So there's a tick in the box there. Do they have plenty of liquidity? Yes. You know, again. Changing regulatory requirements post the GFC, so fundamentally, you know, banking is very sound. The other crime they committed, you know, pre-GFC was that they allowed their underwriting standards to relax. So if we think back to you know, Northern Rock lending 125% loan-to-value mortgages, um, so-called ninja loans in the in the US, you know, no income, no job, or no assets. And and that's when you look at where banks have failed. It's because they've they've relaxed their underwriting. They're lending money to people, you know, or to, to businesses that they shouldn't. So from that perspective, you know, it, it's it's hard to see, you know, where where they they come, you know, undone. But you know, like any business, um, you know, cybercrime is it cyber, that, that's always a risk, and you have to be cognizant of that, and and that 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 affects not just banks but everybody. A fifth of the portfolio, according to your latest fact sheet, is invested in Asia. Um, George, how confident are you about the stability of the Asian banks? Could Chinese real estate group um, Evergrande's recent troubles be a catalyst for further defaults in the property sector, which is such an important part of China's economy? Yeah, so in, in terms of our exposure in the in the trust, um, you know, so we we invest in areas like the private sector banks in India and Indonesia. So these are very well capitalized, very profitable, you know, well run banks. You know, HFC Bank in India, BCA in Indonesia. You know, we we've followed these for many cycles. You know, we're confident in terms of their ability to weather downturns, and and we've certainly seen that this cycle. You know, we don't have exposure to Chinese banks in in the trust, and and we've struggled. In terms of transparency there, and, and often we find that sort of loans are made not on sort of purely commercial reasons. So, you know, for that reason, you know, our, our exposure in China is, is not through the banks. But in terms of Evergrande, you know, we think there will be some impact in terms of the, the Chinese banks with, with exposure in terms of provisioning in the second half. Um, but we do think the government will probably be able to contain the spillover risk. So, you know, ensuring completion of Evergrande projects which were pre-sold or ensuring home buyers, you know, access to mortgages. So I think there is a ability for them to to contain that spill of a risk. Okay. And Nick, I just looking down the list of your holdings, I see that HSBC is one of one of the few UK banks in there, but the majority of its profits come from Asia. What's your outlook for HSBC? Um, I'll, I'll let George uh, take that, if that's all right. Okay, yeah. 
please go ahead George yeah so I mean I think we've we see a number of catalysts for and it. it's a stock which has underperformed you know this year uh, it's been weighed down by China political risk and then concerns about property but it's also had earnings upgrades coming through it so we've seen it derate and, and look at interesting in terms of valuations you know it's exposed to exposed to high rates not just in the UK but also in, in the US uh, and in Asia particularly in, in Hong Kong so around 25 basis points rate increase adds about $1.5 billion to their net interest income. It's about a 10% uplift to their earnings. Um, so you know, clearly very sensitive to, to rising rates. It's trading at a big discount to book value. Um, and so you know, we think from a valuation point of view, it's, it's attractive with clear catalysts and it has excess capital to pay you know, an attractive yield around 5% plus, plus some buybacks to come through. So having been unloved, you know, I think it's looking interesting um, and then sits alongside our UK exposure where we have a specialist bank, one savings bank, which, you know, we've preferred for a long period of time, you know, it generates high teens return on equity, continues to take market share from, from the large cap banks. Um, and, uh, you know, we think it looks well-placed to continue to, to grow. And just more generally, how confident are you feeling about banks within the emerging markets at the moment? Yeah, I mean, I, I think... They're sort of they're very sort of different grouping, but you know overall, it's EM have fewer macro imbalances that they had in, in previous periods of of US rate rises, so they should be in a better position to to handle that. Um, but you know it will clearly depend on on which part of EM, and I think historically we've had a preference for for Asia, can, given that they're stronger funding positions and, and, and generally better, better capital positions. So we, we think there's greater resilience there and that's been reflected in, in the trust holdings. Yeah. And I, I mentioned earlier that you have low allocation to UK banks. Why is this? Yeah, I, mean, I think we, you know, we've, as mentioned, looked to play it through the specialist banks with the, the large cap banks. I think the outlook has improved for them and, and they will be beneficiaries potentially of, of rising rates coming through next year. In terms of Lloyd's, which we sold, um, you know, end of end of this end of last year, that we had some concerns about the level of mortgage competition coming through. So whilst we might get rate rises uh, as a positive, we're seeing some pretty fierce competition in terms of front book mortgage spreads, which could offset that rate rise um, benefit. Uh, in particular, with Lloyd's, you know, some people have also noted the the risk related to the pension deficit, um, which potentially could offset, you know, could could impact capital return you also have a new ceo coming coming in so in terms of strategy a little bit unclear there so if we're looking to play rate rises you know we think there are some other ways to do that at the moment nick there's been a there's been a sort of boom in ipos and m&as mm. recently to what extent has has your fund benefited from this both in terms of banks working on the deals um, and being participants themselves yes um so you know, JP Morgan's our, our largest holding, as you've seen. So they've been a you know big beneficiary of that. I mean, historically, we've preferred the more traditional retail and commercial banks or universal banks, as they're also called, over the pure investment banks. So we don't own Goldman Sachs. Uh, we do have a holding in Morgan Stanley. Uh, we don't own Barclays, for instance. And, and the driver behind that is, um, you know, it's the volatility of returns, you know, Markets don't like volatility, so they like to put a multiple on what they believe is a sustainable return. And therefore, when you look at the most highly rated banks globally, they tend to be either those that are growing faster, but you know, more often it's the ones that 
have a higher quality income stream. You know, some of the custody banks in the US or those who have you know payment subsidiaries and, you know, and so forth. So we've always been a little bit cautious around some of the investment banks, but you know we still very much benefited from that trend in recent months. Yeah, I, I had noticed that I was going to ask about um, the absence of Goldman Sachs and Barclays. So that yes. makes sense. There's also there's there's been a bit of a trend of investment banks moving more into the retail wealth management robo advice space. Um, you've got JPM Chase in in the UK bought Nutmeg and Goldman Sachs Marcus is setting up robo advice products. Do you think is this is this a trend that will continue? And do you think it's a threat to the more traditional wealth managers? Uh, yes, I mean, it's, it's interesting. I mean, it's definitely interesting what, what you know, some of the moves that they've been making. Um, I mean, it's still very small fish for, for some of these banks. Um, you know, the, the, what, what JP Morgan is doing in the UK with Chase, um, they've obviously only just launched their app. Um, it's going to take, you know, it's a very long, long-term project. So as we've seen with, you know, a number of the startup digital banks in the UK, the likes of, uh, you know, Monzo, Starling, etc. Um, it, it takes a long time for that to feed through to, to profitability and returns. So it's a competitive threat in the very, very long term. But, you know, in the very short term, it's all going to be driven by macro events. Yeah, and it, it looks like you don't have much exposure to asset and wealth management companies. Um, but the big banks, as, as we've said, do tend to have these arms do you think asset management companies on their own are less attractive investments than than the big banks no no far from it so we've we've done extremely well we've had a holding in blackstone so when you look at the asset management sector the sort of what you call the alternative asset managers so the likes of blackstone apollo kkr etc have have you know performed fantastically well they've seen huge growth in assets under management as people look to you know, access, you know, private credit, private equity, you know, direct real estate, direct lending, it's, you know, and, and other areas. And so, you know, they, they've, that's performed incredibly well for us. Um, our concern about the traditional asset managers has just been that, you know, the headwinds from, um, you know, a shift as people have moved into either into passives or into more specialized funds or, you know, into alternatives. So they've seen, you know, difficulty in raising flows and also that pressure on on fees. Uh, again, when you're competing against, you know, ETFs and passive funds. Um, so that's why we've had a preference there for uh, the likes of Blackstone. I guess also quite a lot of the asset management companies aren't listed. Um, so in terms of your sectors you've got the majority in banking and then you have diversified financials which includes you know the private equity alternative managers as you said you've got payments companies and insurance companies which of these sectors george are you most excited about well i mean i think around 70 percent of the of the trust is is within the banking sector at the moment so i mean that's an area clearly that you know we think is is best positioned at the moment at this point of the cycle, as Nick was saying, given where valuations are, given the sensitivity to, to rising rates, um, you know, it, it does look particularly well positioned um, to, to re-rate from here and to, to benefit from earnings upgrades. Um, you know, it's it's been 
face headwinds from a low rate environment for for a long period of time and i think people have assumed that would continue so you are going to starting to get a bit of a reevaluation of, of the outlook um, and whilst it has seen some recovery it still trades at an attractive discount to um to the broader market so i think you know that's the area that we're most positive on at the moment yeah i guess i guess you'd have to say that is it's your largest <laughs> sector but <laughs> um nick what do you think about the relative value of the insurance sector yeah, no, so um, we do like the insurance sector. It, it trades on a slightly higher multiple than, than the banking sector and, and historically. So, I mean, for us, you know, about two-thirds of our exposure is in, in non-life or property casualty insurance companies. So to give examples, you know, things like you know, Direct Line, which you'll know well in the UK, or Chubb in the US, or Sampo in Scandinavia. And, you know, we've liked that because it's historically defensive. You know, it's counter-cyclical because... Obviously, it's you know losses are driven by weather-related, uh, weather-related losses or accidents. Um, last year was obviously a bit of a black swan event. Um, you saw you know losses around obviously COVID to do with business interruption, event cancellation. So you've seen an acceleration in in uh, rate increases for insurance, and um, as a consequence, we think over the next two to four years, actually the outlook's very good. Uh, however, in the short term. You know, people are either concerned about, well, I'm, I'm owning some of the sort of faster growing sectors in the market like tech or healthcare, or I'm, I'm playing at the other end of the barbell, maybe I'm playing some of the more recovery stories, whether that's banks or other cyclical sectors. And non-life has fallen a little bit between those two stalls, so it's, it's lagged recently. Um, but we think, you know, the outlook's good. Uh, in the short term, as, you know, as, as George was saying, we've, we've, we're positioned more in banks to take, you know, obviously take advantage of that cyclical recovery. And another theme in the fund is payments companies. Um, you own Visa and MasterCard. There is some talk of buy now, pay later companies such as Klarna and Afterpay taking market share from traditional credit card companies. Uh, what are your thoughts on this? Yeah, I mean, it's become a real theme and they're, they're, they're growing rapidly. I mean, I think we're seeing a wide range of people also offer buy now, pay later. So, you know, as will MasterCard, as will PayPal um, and, and Klarna, which is, the you know, the, the, the dominant player in Europe and increasingly in, in the US. Um, I mean, it's an interesting theme. Uh, we'll have to see how the regulator responds to it. Um, so I think that's an area that's a potential risk for it particularly given the demographic that they're often targeting sort of younger younger borrowers um but no i think it's certainly here to stay it's it's a real growth theme we're seeing it globally as well so payment companies in india paytm which you know has very successful in terms of growing a customer base there 330 million customers but you know we're struggling to monetize that and they're now using buy now pay later uh, as a route to monetization and, and profitability so they're ipoing later i think this month um, so I think, you know, it's a definitely it's a growing trend. It's coming from quite a small base um, and, and it's going to drive significant growth. And I think, you know, we'll continue to take market share from from the car companies. And Nick, another trend, growing trend that's that's not quite developed yet, but it's really interesting and, and difficult to understand the implications of is central bank digital currencies, which do theoretically have have the potential to upend the global banking system. All, all the central banks are looking into them. It, China, it would seem, is leading the way. What are your thoughts on how the concept is developing? I think, yeah, as you, it is early days. I mean, a lot of central banks are looking into it. It remains to be seen sort of what 
structure it, what form it comes in. So I think from what we've read, maybe they put a cap of about 3,000 euros on retail deposits held at the central bank. Um, if that was the case, then you are going to get a loss of deposits within the banking system that potentially could lead would lead to higher funding costs. And, and the kind of analysis we've, we've seen suggests about a 2%, 3% impact to NII, which could lead to around a 7% impact to, to pre-tax profit. So it would be negative for the banking system. But I think bearing in mind, it's unlikely that the central bank would introduce something which destabilizes their own banking system. So I think it, it is you know, it is going to come in some form. It's a bit early to assess what impact it would have, but I don't think central banks want to disintermediate their own their own banking system. Um, but it will, you know, accelerate that whole process of digitization of of payments, and and so you know those companies would would ultimately be winners. You know, the, the companies that are benefiting from that whole structural shift from cash to, to digital. Yeah, I was going to ask if you've sort of been thinking about which companies might be the winners and the. And the losers, would you say you think it would play into the hands of the payments companies and be more worrying for the banks? Yeah, I mean, I, I think it would be it would be negative for the banks, but yeah, as noted, difficult to know to what extent. But I think that whole process of digitization is just accelerating. We've seen that during COVID. You know, we'd see that with digital currencies. And so, you know, we, we know they would be beneficiaries of, of that process. Um, you know, there's questions later down the line about the margins that some of these payment companies can charge i think you know that that's you know a question about the sustainability of some of their returns but you know it, it's a long way to go in terms of that process of, of shifting from cash to digital payments and just another question about banks in terms of your us and european holdings which which ones do you view as better quality i mean historically um we've had a preference for um the US over Europe and within Europe, uh, probably the sort of Nordic banks over, you know, Eurozone and, and other banks. And uh, in the case of the US, I mean, the, the reasons for that is largely better profitability, better growth, um, and, you know, perhaps less regulatory intrusion at the margin. Um, but, you know, you, you've, you've also got the opportunity, you know, there's still close to 5,000 banks in the US. Um, you know, a few hundred of those are listed. So you, you can, you know, we got exposure to some Californian banks that uh, are growing much faster than, let's say, some of the banks um, based up in the northeast of the US, where obviously, you know, some of those old, old rust bucket states, you're not, you're, you're not seeing as far, you know, as, as much growth. So there's the ability to find some really interesting niche banks there. Um, but, you know, key for us has always been, you know, uh, do do banks make a, a sensible return on on capital on on, on you know on equity? Uh, you know what kind of risks are they taking? Do they have a good funding structure, etc.? And and the difficulty with you know in Europe when you've had negative low or negative interest rates, um, that's really pressured their business models. Now with the Scandin- Scandinavian banks, they've been very good at cutting costs and digitizing to offset that. So you know, DNB, which is Norway's largest bank, for example, has, has closed something like eighty percent of its branch network over the last ten years, and seen no loss of market share, or no notable notable loss of market share, um, and therefore still actually you know they're still making a, a, a decent return. So um, yeah, there's nuances uh, within it, but uh, probably you know the US has been a preference. And across geographies, is um something we haven't spoken about yet is stagflation a, a concern for you yeah i mean I, I think it would it's not a positive scenario for the sector um 
But uh, I think as we, you know, what can we do? We can look back to previous periods where we saw this and in the 70s. We actually, you know, it's a period in which we we did see banks outperform, but it was negative for equity markets overall. So, um, you know, we have to see the extent to which, you know, growth, you know, surprises on the downside and, and, and inflation, you know, the outlook for that as well. But I think, you know, it wouldn't be a positive scenario, but it could be relatively positive for, for the sector, as we saw before. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I, I think in, in, yeah, in that environment where you're more likely to see interest rates rising by more than the market currently expects, then at least within banks and to a lesser extent insurance companies, you, you've got some tailwind uh, that are benefiting the businesses where you know other, other, other sectors might struggle, especially sort of some of the long duration sectors like technology and healthcare, you know, trading on much, much higher multiples. And just in terms of the dividend, um, the trust managed to keep to keep paying its dividend out of revenue reserves. That's one of the attractiveness of the closed end structure is that they can smooth out dividend payments. What's yeah. the current state of your reserves, and when do you forecast that the dividend might be fully covered again? Yeah, so um, we launched. The trust was launched in 2013 with a sort of income and growth mandate, so um, yield of about three percent. Um, that's been, I mean, every single year prior to the pandemic, we generated more income than we paid out in dividends and built up some decent revenue reserves. So not surprisingly, we had to dip into them in, in, during, in 2020. Um, again, this year, we'll be dipping into the, the revenue reserves to a much smaller extent. And uh, next year, you know, that might well be the, you know, the case again. But we're, we're seeing a very sharp recovery in dividends, obviously, coming through from the sector as you know, regulators have relaxed those restrictions. So that's something that, you know, the board and ourselves, you know, as a manager will have to review um, at some point over the next year. And um, you cut the fee at yes. at the beginning of last year and, and changed the performance fee. Do, do you plan to keep the fee structure as it is? Uh, yes, there's no plans to, um, you know, change that. That was negotiated with the... Uh, Broad, obviously, there's been, uh, you know, a, a de- you know, management fees have, have, you know, declined over time. And part of the reconstruction when the trust life was extended indefinitely uh, was a renegotiation of that fee. So there's no plans for that to change uh, for the foreseeable future. Okay, great. Well, I'm afraid that's all we've got time for now. Um, but that was really helpful. Great overview of the trust. And I'm sure your shareholders will be very happy with its recent performance. And thank you very much for coming on. Thank you. Thank you. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.